guillotine. But he was a bad man. You know, Saul was a bad man. That's what I'm trying to help us understand is how bad this man was. In verse 3 it says, Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I don't know, does it upset you to think that people like this, you know, like the list? Uh, and Paul being included in it. Does it upset you at all to think that they can just have, do this kind of terror on humanity, come to an end of their life, they have this come to Jesus moment, repent, and then it just seems like everybody's just supposed to be like, okay. You know, like just forget about the past and just rejoice with this man's change of heart. Does that not seem a little bit hard to accept? You know, Franklin Graham suggested twice uh, about that we should pray for Putin. One of them was before the invasion actually happened, just a few days actually before the invasion happened. He tweeted out uh, that we should be praying for Putin. And then just like last week during Easter um, uh, weekend, he was interviewed by Fox and he was he was pleading with the people to be praying for a change of heart uh, for Putin. And if you can imagine, he really got some backlash from that, very negative backlash. People were not happy with Franklin Graham suggesting such a thing. Why, why is it that that bothers us? I don't know. I was thinking about that. It, 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 I don't think it's because we don't welcome a change of heart. We don't welcome peace in our world. I think what bothers us is that we want somebody like that to reap what they sow, to get what they deserve. And if you ask the people in Ukraine, that's what they would be pleading for. They would be pleading for punishment. They would want there to be, you know, uh, uh, just, just something that, that is equivalent to what they had to suffer under his hands. They deserve to not be shown grace. They deserve to be punished. You know, Ananias was, he felt this way about Saul. He didn't understand, you know, why God would want to offer grace and mercy to this man. And so we'll go on in verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he was seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
And here he, he has authority from the priests, the chief priest, to bind all who call on your name. And the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I just, it's really hard. I, I just really want us to grasp, because when you read this, the people that would have read this in the day, the first receivers of this word, they would have understood what I'm trying to paint for you. This is a Putin character. This is a Saddam Hussein character. This is somebody that has done great harm to people that they knew and live in even today. And he is in a tough position, Ananias is, because no way was he going to disobey God when God just shows up the way that he does and says, Ananias, this is what I need you to do. But no way was he not going to question this in his head about what he thought is right and what he thinks should happen to Saul. God is always going to question your logic. Have you ran across this yet? He is always going to question your logic, and he is always going to give you opportunity, often give you reason and cause for you to question his logic. And you're going to have this struggle, just like Ananias has had, if you haven't already or if you're not in the midst of it right now. There's going to be something in your life that God is going to be like, I want you to go do this. And you're going to be like, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't, that doesn't, that's not logical to me. And you will question it. You know, God has said to hundreds of thousands of his followers and throughout history. He has said something to this way. You need to go sell your house. You need to go sell your stuff. You need to pack up what you have and you need to move. He did that with Abraham. And he has done that since then thousands and thousands of times. There are people that I come across all the time that I have in conversation I found out that sometime in the past they felt this calling to go into ministry. And I'm just sitting there thinking, but you're not in ministry. Why are you not in ministry? Because this is a hard thing, right? When God has something that's so earth-changing, so dramatic, that he asks of us, it is hard for us to see the logic in it. We want to say, are you insane? But we wouldn't say that to God. I bet Ananias had the thought, though, right? Are you crazy? I can't do that. And let me tell you something about that. So you'll struggle with this, this logic of God. And he'll give you reason to struggle with this because he knows that you don't know what you need to know. But he'll know that you struggle with this, but you will always find people right next to you, whether it's your parents or your friends, and they will be like agreeing with you. That would be crazy. Don't go do that. You're going to go sell everything? Don't go sell everything. You must not, that must be Satan trying to disguise himself as God. He doesn't want you doing that. You know, God has said to hundreds of thousands of his followers throughout history, forgive them just as I have forgiven you. We've already walked down this a little bit. But don't you know that the logic, when it comes to us, and the person that he's asked us to forgive is different than 
the other person that's dealing with unforgiveness, right? And we were just like, like, God, you just don't really understand. Can you imagine us saying that to God, though, that he doesn't understand? But this is what we think. This is what we feel like. His logic doesn't make sense. You, if you really understood how much they hurt me, if you understood that they raped me and have changed my future, they have changed everything about that, they have destroyed me, you would not be asking this of me. But he does ask this of us. If you understood what he has done to my family, if you understood what she has done to my family, then you would understand that this doesn't make sense. But God God does make sense. And so we have so many reasons, so many excuses to not follow through. But on and on we could go. But if we have lived very much life at all, then we know that there's going to be times in our life that we're going to think, man, God, that just doesn't seem right. There's, I, I just don't see the logic in that. I don't see, you know, and we would question God. I don't know that it's, okay, it's bad to question God. Ananias questions God. Do you see that? But he went ahead and obeyed God. And I think that's the thing. is that It's not that we're not going to come into places in our life that we question God, but we just have to trust that he's right, we're not, and we're going to go ahead and obey him, even though it seems illogical to me that this is what I ought to do. Verse 17, let's go on. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. I want to make three quick observations before we're done here this morning. And we're just going to go through these pretty quick. But the first observation that I want us to see that I glean from this is, is this simply this. Good intentions aren't good enough. Have you experienced that one? Good intentions aren't good enough. Or, or let me just rephrase it or, or deepen it just a little bit. Your good intentions... Your children's good intentions, your loved one's good intentions are not going to be enough to make them right with God. It's not going to be enough to get them through the pearly gates. It's not going to be enough to save them. Good intentions are just not good enough. Saul's goal in life was to do what? Tear down everything that the apostles were trying to build upon to do to tear down everything that Jesus was trying to establish in this world to destroy the church that Jesus established he was not your stereotypical sinner on the contrary he was actually he was a he was a very religious man very 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 religious man 
he felt extremely like everything he was doing, all of the murders, all of, all of the terrorizing that he was doing, he felt justified and that it was righteous. I was just talking to Emily in Sunday school, but don't you know that list that I just gave you, that they all probably have that in common as well? That they all think that they're doing a righteous act and a righteous deed and that they have the you know, rightness on their side I think so for the most part, but Paul definitely did, and Paul was a very religious man. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, it says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, let me tell you what a good person I am. And he makes this list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a perse- persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, blameless. There is nobody that could compare themselves to Paul and think that he wasn't a righteous, religious, good, godly man. He was. I read this the other day. You see if you can make any sense of it for what I'm trying to say here. In our younger days, my husband and I signed up for boot camp fitness class. The class cost $300 a person for 10 classes. At the start of the first class, our instructor, Tara, does a quick roll call, and she frowns and comments, hmm, Susie isn't here. That's a shame. Attending our first class is pretty critical because I go over some important techniques Oh, well, I'll call her later and see what happened. At the start of the second class, Susie is also, again, a no-show. Someone asked Tara, our instructor, if she got a hold of her, and Tara says, oh, yeah. She told me that she had got super busy and was unable to make it to the first class, but she swore that she would make it here today. I reminded her that she spent $300 and asked her if she wanted another class time that would fit with her busy schedule. And she said, nope, that one will be fine. Third class, still no Susie. Fourth class, ditto. And so it went. She never did show up. Despite Tara bending over backwards to try to accommodate her, Susie always had an excuse. I got busy. I forgot. I got stuck in traffic, etc. As for my husband and me, we enjoyed the class so much, we signed up again for the next session. So did Susie. And you can probably guess what happened. I don't know if you see that compared to what I'm trying to express, but what if you took that story and applied it into our spiritual world for a moment? Have you ever known people that just have really good intentions to follow through, to be here, to do that, to contribute to this, to participate in that, but yet it just never seems to work. I don't know. Do you see also just ultimately what it all comes down to is either we are connected with God or we are not connected with God. That's that's just the way it is. Either we are for him or we are against him. 
It's like black and white the way God sees it. That's one of the reasons that Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So either you're just showing yourself to be on my side or you're showing yourself to be against me. We want to hope and think that there is just a whole lot of gray in there, a whole lot of understanding, a whole lot of accepting, a whole lot of just seeing my intentions are good kind of thing. Now, Paul, I want to take this a little further because Paul was super religious. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, he describes himself with this phrase. He, he is like uh, uh, so religious, he is following the traditions of my fathers. In other words, I am just doing what I have taught to do. I grew up in a godly home. I was raised by godly parents. I was instructed by godly instructors. I went to church every Sunday. I was in Sunday school class. I was the guy who was inviting all of his friends and and buddies to church. I was all in. And still, he was all out. He was on the outside of God. He was on the outside of grace. He was on the outside of all of that. So how is it that a religious, righteous, godly man needed to be rescued, needed to be shown mercy, grace? Because good intentions are just not good enough. His intentions were good, were they not? He was going around killing all of the people he thought were you know, um, coming against God. And it earned him nothing. So the question will always be, are you connected to Jesus or are you connected to religion? They are totally different, aren't they? And people that are connected to religion are going to be super disappointed when they find out their good intentions just weren't good enough. Here's another thing that I want you to see. Not only is our good intentions just not good enough, but I want you to see also that God has the power and the authority to save whoever he wants in this story. He doesn't have to ask our permission. He doesn't have to get our okay in order for him to do what he wants to do. You know, in, in the verse two, two verses here, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, still breathing it because that's what he was doing. This is all that he was about. He was traveling around all over. In Acts chapter 7, if you flip back there, you will find that he just killed this really amazing, godly, Jesus-following disciple named Stephen. And they took their cloaks and they laid them at the the foot of Saul, this man, as they stoned Stephen. He was not a good person. Verse 2 says, he asked and asked him for letters, the high priest, asked the high priest for letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul had obtained 
you know, authorization that he could just go in any place he wanted, get a list of names, and then go terrorize those people or kill those people. Now, God could have written Paul off, and I'm pretty sure that if we lived then, we would probably say God should have written Paul off. But in God's sovereignty, and you know what sovereignty means, right? It's just a really big, fancy word that means God gets to do what he wants to do. He doesn't need anybody's permission to do it. And in God's sovereignty, the Lord could have struck him down and killed him instantly on that road to Damascus, but what he decided to do is blind him for three days. Get his attention and then give him the opportunity to turn his life over to the authority of Jesus. And he gave him a new life, a new beginning. If God wouldn't have done that, Saul would have spent eternity where a whole lot of people spend eternity because they think good intentions are good enough. And they're just not. And if, and if Paul would have went to hell probably everybody would have said he went right where he deserved to go. And if you die lost in your sins, that is exactly what will happen to you. And if that happens, you will go exactly where you deserve to go. Because it's... It is, we have to somehow grasp this, but we are all saved by the grace of God, are we not? And if we don't get what we deserve, it's only because God does what he did for Paul here, for each of us out here. He gives us grace and mercy. And don't you know that if we make it, which we will if we trust in Jesus, if we surrender our lives and, and give him the authority of our lives and we become his followers, then we will make it. Because that's how amazing Jesus is and the ability he has. We can't save ourselves. But if we do make it and we're in heaven, then here's what I think will happen. I think the first thing that will happen is we will have this overwhelming sense of gratitude and we will just be thanking God and Jesus and probably anybody we see, Paul, it doesn't matter. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for letting me be here. I think that's the first thing that will happen. But I think in our mindsets today, what we would be tempted to do with our mindsets today would be to look around and see who else is there. And then start thinking, well, why are they here? How come they made it? But in reality, when we're there, I don't think we'll do that. But why is it that we struggle with that kind of thought in our hearts today? Knowing what we know? You know, Mark chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why do you eat with, eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And I know that when we read that, we're just thinking, well, those hypocritical critical people, why are they acting like that? And yet, I see this played out all the time. Don't you? This judgment. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, let me read that again. But those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, God didn't just save the righteous, although he saved the righteous. And I don't mean righteous like sinless, flawless. I mean just good people, right? He came to save good people. But God didn't just save the sort of bad people either, or the pretty bad people. Like, where is it that God's limits of saving people go? There are no limits. God is willing to save anybody. And the way he sees it is, I'm just here to save, what? Sinners. I can save because I have the ability to do so. This is God's thinking, right? Because I, Jesus is thinking, I have the authority to save who I want because I have the ability to save whomever I want. Like my death took care of anybody's sin, no matter how little of a sinner they are or how big of a sinner they are. I have the ability to do that. So where he draws the line is just simply here. If you accept his death, burial, and resurrection, and you surrender your life to Jesus, and you become one of his followers. And when you do, it doesn't matter what you've done you will be forgiven. But let me tell you something. There's a whole lot of righteous people that died and went to hell and a lot of sort of bad people and really bad people. You see what I'm saying? We don't don't get in or out based on our behavior. We get in and out based on who we realize can save us and who we finally surrender our lives to. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, it says, And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garment. I bet you know where that was written. Jesus hanging on the cross, and he says this. And let me tell you something, that was the most outrageous, unjust murder that was ever committed in the world today. He was the most righteous because there was no sin found in him. He was the most undeserving of such a horrific thing to happen to him. So the people who committed that horrific act, if anybody deserves to be annihilated and wiped away and sent straight to hell, it would have been anybody that participated in putting the Son of Man to death on the cross. And yet the Son of Man, hanging from the cross, uses his last few words and breath to utter those words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let me just end this little section by just saying this. I want you to understand that Saul did not find Jesus. Jesus found Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul didn't even know to look for Jesus. But Jesus sought out Saul 
Jesus called out his name. Did you see that? Jesus changed his life. And I think that that's just really important for us to understand that this is all Jesus is doing, and therefore he has the only one that has the authority to do this. Last week we were in, in John chapter 6, and did you see what it said there in the midst of that? No one comes to me unless the Father, what? Draws him. Now, it would be my guess that you are sitting here today because you have felt this drawing of God. Like this calling of God into your life. You have to be invited. Have you noticed that? I think it's a smart thing to pray for somebody to be invited. I kind of appreciate the fact that Franklin Graham suggested such a thing. But I do get how hard it is to want to accept that kind of logic. But it is godly logic. And what is it that you have been invited to if you have felt this call? Invited to religion? No. Invited to a relationship with the creator of the universe and his son, Jesus Christ. If you've been invited, then let me ask you another question. What were you invited to? What were you saved for? You should know that. You think Paul walked away thinking, I don't know what he invited me to. Now, he didn't know where it was going to lead him. He didn't even know where he was going tomorrow. But what he knew is that God saved me for a reason. And I already know what that reason is. It's to do the opposite of what I've been doing. Instead of persecuting the church, I need to grow the church. I need to multiply the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. The NIV says compels us. It's what gives us our fuel, our motivation, our, our wake-up power, you know, when we get out of bed. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. He's talking about Jesus. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake, died and was raised again. That's what Paul's conclusion is, not only for himself, but that's what he goes around preaching everywhere he goes now, is that if you really understand what you have in Jesus Christ and that he invited you into this, then you would also understand he invited you into something to spend your life not for yourself, but for him who died for you. Here's the third thing, and it's going to be really quick, but... God, so good intentions aren't good enough, right? And God has the power and the authority to save anybody he wants. And the last thing I want you to see here, my observation, is that God owns you. He owns your life. Once Paul... Saul runs into Jesus, blinds him, and then sends him to Ananias. What Jesus told him, he says, go to, you know, uh, 
to Ananias, and he will tell you what I want you to do. And then God tells Ananias, I'm going to use, I've chosen to save this man, and I'm going to use him. And he's going to find out all that he's going to suffer for my name's sake. But the reality is, is all of that does is paint a picture that God owns this man now. It is no longer his life, no longer his choosings of what he's going to do and how he's going to spend it. He is now my prisoner. There are many titles that Paul uses for himself. For instance, if I walk through that with you, he calls himself Paul the Aged in Philemon 1.9. In Colossians 1.23, he says that he's a minister of the gospel. In Romans 1.1, he is a servant of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2.25, a soldier of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 3.2, a labor in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But the number one frequent term that Paul uses of himself more than any other term to describe himself is what? A prisoner of the Lord. A slave of Jesus Christ. He pins that in epistle, you know, the epistle of Ephesians when he is in prison by Rome. And he doesn't say ever does he say that he is a prisoner of the Roman Empire or the Roman government or anything like that. He always, even when he was a prisoner, uh, physically in this world, he still refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, a slave to Jesus. And that slave doesn't mean that he is forced. It means that he understands that Jesus, he was bought with a price and he willingly and eagerly gives his rights up every day for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wrote about himself in Galatians 2.23 after that conversion. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That in and of itself you could just think about for quite some time. What did he mean? Crucified with Christ. It means it's no longer he who lives. And that's why he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I am now living in the flesh, I live by, the, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He paid for me. He ransomed me. He sanctified me. Now, let me turn the table for a second. I just want to read a few verses that should sink into us and should help us understand that this is the exact same thing that God is after in your life. The same concept. In Psalm 100, verse 3, it says, Now that the Lord... Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are whose? We are the Lord's. That means that, that my breath is not for me. My breath is for Him. My labor is for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with, with, within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Communion is, you know, it's all about us coming together as believers in Jesus Christ and partaking of this, these emblems that represent uh, a death. And we know that when we take of this bread, we are taken of a bread that represents Jesus who gave himself up for us. And we know when we take of the juice, we're drinking this, this beverage, this juice, representing his blood as if we understand what he has done for us, that he gives us life, that he sacrificed on our behalf. And we have to receive it, right? We have to receive each of these things, receive them intentionally within ourselves. But there is another aspect of when we come around the table, what it represents. It also represents our own dying to self. Jesus says, "If, if you want to follow me, you must deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. Remember what Paul says? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There's, this is the same kind of opportunity that we have every week. It's to understand that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. I don't only have eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done. I am therefore his slave. I am therefore his servant. And I am therefore going to live my life to please him. Anything outside of understanding and accepting that is just nothing but good intentions. And good intentions are not good enough. He saves whom he wants to save. And he has chosen to want to save you. And maybe today is just your road to Damascus opportunity. Paul was religious too. I don't think that, I think you could actually sit in a pew 40 years of your life and still not have your road to Damascus experience. But let me tell you something. If Jesus is inviting you, you would be silly to not accept him in this offer. He saves who he wants to save. But if you accept this, then you have to understand this. He owns you. You are no longer yours. You were bought at a price. This is the price. Let's pray. And then we're going to partake of communion. Father God, we uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to partake of this juice and this bread that represents what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. We know, Father, that we do not save ourselves by anything that we do. We only are saved because you have invited us to be a part of your kingdom. Father, we are sinners that realize that only you can save us. Father, help us understand what this costs us, not just what it costs you, but what it costs us if we accept your offering. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 